The Rural Health Voice, Episode 44, COVID Conspiracies and African-American Communities. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Are conspiracies about COVID fact or fiction? Ashley Reynolds Marshall, Executive Director at the YWCA of Central Virginia, joined us to discuss how mistrust of public health initiatives is sometimes well-earned. So welcome back, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure. Yeah. And you've been on here before. And since we heard from you last, you have not only given a presentation at the Rural Health Voice Conference, but you became a board member of the Virginia Rural Health Association. Now, this month, we will be selecting the new board members who will join us in 2021. As a new member, what input or advice do you have for that next group? Sure. I think that for our next group of incoming board members, just uh, come in with all of your ideas and all of your thoughts and all of your expertise, because that's really what we're all here to do, is to put our brain power together along with staff and you, Beth, and figure out how to make sure that our communities and our more rural areas of the Commonwealth are getting served appropriately, effectively, and efficiently. Right. Oh, we appreciate that. We're looking forward to, we, we actually have more people who applied this year oh, than wow. we have seats. So we're actually going to vote. I'm so excited. That is exciting. That is very exciting. <laughs> now for today, I invited you on the show because you are a contributing author to a book that's come out soon titled COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. Tell me a little bit about the book. Sure. Uh, So it was really my pleasure to join a group of amazing authors um, around actually the the world to uh, write about uh, the current pandemic that we're in, but in the light of a lot of the misinformation and discussion that's occurring. So COVID-19 conspiracy theories really looks holistically at all of those stories that may be floating around that are are untrue uh, in in at least most of of their their breadth and depth. And because they're floating around, they can have a negative impact on individuals and their health and wellness. So when we look at those theories, uh, the primary concern that I um, really had and what really drew me to being a part of this project is that these conspiracy theorists can cause people to either not perhaps take precautions uh, for COVID-19 or perhaps to engage in behavior that could harm them even if they don't get COVID-19. And in your chapter, you specifically address the mistrust African-Americans often have regarding public health initiatives But that mistrust isn't so much theory as it is historical fact, isn't it? Absolutely. So um, one of my favorite uh, television shows is The Daily Show, and there is a comedian, Roy Wood Jr., who has a sketch on it called CP Time. And there's a particular sketch where he talks about conspiracy theories in the Black community. And what really stuck out to me is he made mention that people may think that some of these theories are just Black people being kind of crazy or maybe gullible, but it's actually very serious 
when um, people stop to think about how many of these conspiratorial thoughts actually are rooted in historical facts and historical events for communities of color. And if someone says Tuskegee, two thoughts come to my mind. One, a group of World War II pilots, and two, some horrific medical experiments. Talk to me about Tuskegee. Sure. Uh, So the Tuskegee experiments were conducted here in the United States from 1932 to 1972 by the United States Public Health Service. And what happened is they enrolled 600 Black men who were primarily rural sharecroppers. And in this, this recruitment, they provided a false promise of really good medical care. What actually happened is that individuals were uh, given syphilis. And um, when that occurred, roughly uh, 400 of the subjects were men who had a clear medical diagnosis of latent syphilis. And unfortunately, those men were actually not given medical care, but were only given placebo medications such as aspirin or a mineral supplement for the duration of the experiment. And that is because the experiment was created to see what happens when you do not treat syphilis. And this went on even after 1947, when we realized that penicillin would very easily and very inexpensively treat syphilis. So think of it, 1947, penicillin has come out. We know that penicillin will treat syphilis, and these men were still denied any actual medical treatment, even though there is now a drug that will treat it extremely cheaply and extremely efficiently. Uh, and so really, it it didn't end again until 1972, and it ended because um, it Jane, uh, sorry, Jean Heller of the Associated Press wrote a story about the experiment, and she discovered the story after one of the investigators, Mr. Peter Buxton, found out about the study in 1968 and told his superiors about how unethical it was. So in 1968, there's a whistleblower saying, you shouldn't do this. Keep in mind, it kept going until 1972 when her article, Ms. Heller's article, came out. And then once the article came out, the study was suspended. But by that time, 28 participants had perished from untreated syphilis. A hundred more had died from medical complications of their untreated syphilis. Forty households had contracted the disease, and it had been passed on to 19 children at birth. You know, what always strikes me is that in modern medical experiments, you always have a test group and a control group. And the test group gets the drug and the control group gets a placebo. And then the researchers see if and how much the people in the test group improve over those who have the placebo. You know, but as you stated, treating syphilis was not the goal. Documenting the process was the goal. Which brings me to the next question. In the book, you use the phrase, devalue black bodies. Tell me what that means. Sure. So really what I mean by that when we think about devaluing Black bodies is that we know that the first slaves were brought over in 1619. And since then, what many people don't know is that um, African-American slaves 
especially, were used during the time of slavery for a lot of testing. Um, They were not seen at that time as people. They were seen as beasts of burden. They certainly were less than. At one point, they counted as three-fifths of people. And so testing on them simply made sense in the same way we test on lab rats now. And so one of the most shocking, I think, um, examples of this is really a lot of modern gynecology. So many people have probably heard of Henrietta Lacks at this point, where her cells were used without her consent. But what people don't know is that a lot of the medical procedures in modern gynecology were tested on African-American female slaves without anesthesia. Additionally, we saw a lot of sterilization of African-Americans for various reasons, again, without their consent. And so there's been this continuous devaluation of the bodies of Black people, and it didn't stop at slavery. What we can link it to now, and I know that um, you just did a podcast about maternal health, is actually that. So one of the things that we know is that we don't know why African-American women are dying at a higher rate in childbirth because nobody has studied them. And honestly, it's because there wasn't a lot of value placed on studying them. There wasn't a lot of funding placed specifically on looking at maternal health and maternal outcomes for people of color. And so again, that is devaluing that body, that is devaluing the access to adequate health care, the access to real and true health care that communities of color are facing every day. And with that, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told to stay home, work from home, stay away from those not in our immediate family unit as much as possible. Why is it harder for minorities? Sure. What we find is that it is harder uh, mainly for people of color to abide by those rules because of, uh, I'm going to talk on two main issues. The first is employment. So oftentimes what you see is that um, individuals of color, um, marginalized individuals, have lower wage jobs that require them to be in close proximity with others. Um, This also reaches out when we think of um, some of our more impoverished community members, so not necessarily only people of color, but individuals who are those who are working in your factories and your plants, in your meat processing plants, especially. We saw a huge spike of COVID happen in those plants because of the proximity that those individuals have with each other. We see them also in hospitality. So if we think about a restaurant kitchen, those are usually very close quarters. And so again, you have individuals who are not only in close quarters with their co-workers, but then are going out to serve that food, that meal to an individual customer who might perhaps have been exposed to COVID-19 and maybe asymptomatic. So they are unaware that they are transmitting this disease to other individuals. What we also see in that same um, socioeconomic status is individuals who are using public transportation, for example, to get around, whether that is a public bus or a subway. Again, um, if you think about the iconic images of New York City subways at rush hour, there is no room. There's no room to move around. And these are individuals that don't have other modes of transportation where they can protect themselves a little more. 
The other thing that we see in communities of color that has contributed to an increase of community spread is where they live. So we're seeing a lot of uh, community spread that has occurred in close quarters. And when we think about um, communities of color, African-American communities, as well as our Hispanic Latinx communities, they may be living in multi-generational households. They may be living in households where it's not only multi-generations of the same family, but maybe it's more than one family living together under a roof. Part of that is cultural, uh, especially in our Hispanic community. There is a, a cultural norm of having a multi-generational household. But also part of that is economic. If you have more people in the household, more people are contributing to the rent, for example. We also see that um, communities of color quite often are renters and perhaps renters, again, in apartment complexes, in tenements where perhaps, let's say, even to do their laundry, they must join with other people in a central area. So that has contributed to community spread in the same way we think about the community spread that has occurred in our nation's nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Again, quite a few people in a small area having to interact with each other to do normal functions, perhaps bathrooms, kitchens, eating areas. So that has certainly had a disproportionate impact on um, communities of color contracting COVID-19. Sure. And those service jobs, of course, are the jobs are less likely to have health insurance, less likely to have paid sick leave, all making it harder for people to go, nope, I don't need to go in today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and we are seeing uh, that happen. And even when we think about low-wage um, medical workers, we've spoken a lot about the impacts and the risks that our doctors and our nurses are taking every day, going right on the front lines. But what we often don't talk about is the risk of our CNAs, the risk of the janitorial and maintenance staff at those hospitals and facilities. And again, those are jobs where either A, they may not have access to paid sick leave, or they may have a very small amount of paid sick leave. So you see a lot of individuals just rallying and going to work, um, even if they're sick. And we see this in the flu season. So this is nothing new um, about individuals having to perhaps make a decision as to whether or not they are going to care for themselves or go into their respected workplaces to be able to uh, raise the revenues they need to continue to contribute um, to their bills and to society. Um, so, you know, again, we, we know that this has occurred before in, in just general flu season. Here, unfortunately, we have a disease that for some individuals, especially some people of color, can be even more deadly than contracting influenza. And, you know, you talked about the hospital workers a statistic you used that really stood out to me was that 75% of the janitorial staff in the United States are African-Americans. So the people who are cleaning all of the surfaces and taking out all of the trash that may carry the virus are more likely to be in that category by quite a bit. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we, you know, that is one of the things that we we certainly see is that there are, uh, again, a disproportionate amount of um, African-Americans and other communities of color in those uh, low-wage, front-facing service jobs, um, from janitorial staff to maintenance staff. Again, we see many African-Americans who serve as CNAs. And as a CNA, you may not have a traditional uh, Additional contract, you may be going in working with a very specific person. Again, you might not get that uh, that access to paid sick leave. Uh, there were certainly questions that we had at the height of the pandemic about our, you know, frontline emergency room nurses getting adequate PPE. You will never forget those iconic pictures, I believe they were in New York City, of nurses wearing trash bags um, to try and protect themselves. Uh, Imagine if that nurse can't get access to adequate PPE, the janitorial staff or let's say the food service staff certainly is not going to receive adequate access to those items that could provide a really critical layer of protection um, for them. And then moving out of the hospital setting where at least there was a concerted effort to really move protective items into those facilities. Again, you have um, individuals of color who are typically working those frontline low-wage jobs in college campus food services, for example, um, in public transportation, driving the uh, the buses. And um, also we saw that there was a lot of community spread in our correctional facilities. And again, that they're not just communities of color who are incarcerated, but there certainly are people of color and other um, workers who are working there and not just as corrections staff as we think about it, um, our sheriffs and officers, but again, you have janitorial staff perhaps, you have perhaps some food service staff depending on how they do um, inmate work. Uh, So again, that's another close quarter, tight quarter uh, where you're really going to see that community spread. Now, moving from Fact, back to fiction, while we know that there are some valid historical reasons for minorities to be concerned about public health initiatives, your chapter also dives into the theory that people of African descent are more likely to be immune from viruses. How did that come about? That is actually, I think, one of my favorite um, subsections. And that is really because it, it started off as an article that felt like it had legitimacy, right? Um, So we have this article um, that an individual who was African descent was uh, living in China and was infected and survived, right? And at this point, it was early enough where we weren't quite sure why this particular person made it out so for lack of a better word, easily. And that just spread like wildfire first to um, the African continent. Uh, So there were definitely some news reports that came out there. And then good old social media took hold of it and allowed it to spread even further. So there are these really great 
tweets from um, African-American populations and other Black populations in the UK and the Caribbean saying, hey, we might actually be immune to COVID-19. And this, though, still is rooted in some, um, when we think about some uh, health equity history, it's still rooted in that idea. So when we think about the issues of, again, um, that use of the African-American female body not under anesthesia for uh, the the forefathers of gynecology, the idea was that they didn't need anesthesia because they didn't feel pain, right? And so the idea that African-Americans could maybe be immune to this particular issue um, has a little bit where someone could pull probably a little bit of that history in from the idea that we didn't feel pain. And then also, I know this will sound silly, but as an African-American woman, I always grew up. And when the head lice season came, my mother said, don't worry about it. And I said, what do you mean don't worry about it? I'm this little kid and all my friends have it. And she said, oh, black people don't get head lice. So there is also these modern examples where people grew up and it's just, we don't have to worry about this thing. I grew up when I was very young and the idea was, do African-Americans need to wear sunscreen or are we good? The answer is yes, please wear sunscreen every day, two ounces, shot glass, do it. Uh, But there definitely was some conversation and I was born in the 80s. where still it was, oh, you're fine. You probably won't need it. Um, So I think that even there, there's some historical truth, um, or as as I think Stephen Cabrera would call it, truthiness, because of course we know African-Americans feel pain. And of course we know that African-Americans can be sunburned and can get skin cancer from sun exposure. Uh, But there was this element of truthiness to it. And of course, if your mama tells you, you're going to believe it. So there was this really amazing spread of this concept that um, African-Americans and Africans were immune to COVID-19 because that very first case that they saw in China, the gentleman happened to survive. And that was enough for people to latch on to it. And You know, one thing that I have learned, especially from uh, being able to work in this book and dive into looking at conspiratorial thoughts in communities of color, is sometimes they are warnings and other times they're clutching on to hope. And that's what you really see there. It's not people attempting to be naive, but it certainly is individuals trying to clutch onto this hope that maybe we'll be okay. And then how has that then hurt the response to COVID? Absolutely. What hurt the response to COVID at that point is, um, so for example, one of the uh, Twitter posts that I looked at that talked about that immunity theory by July 1st had been shared more than uh, 56,000 times since its publication in March. And it had an upward of 380 likes. Uh, which is when you get to click on the post saying, this is good, I agree with this, or I've recognized this, right? So if there are a lot of people who believe because of these news stories that were published in the Zambian Observer, as well as the Zambian Eye and Faces of Malawi. So again, people are seeing these as a news article. That's what it feels like to them. Um, Are you going to take extra precautions to be safe? And that's where some of these conspiratorial theories and conspiratorial thoughts start really impacting people's actual health. Because we know now that Africans 
African-Americans and Black individuals are not immune from COVID-19. But for months, these news stories certainly made circulation. And that may have had an individual say, I'm immune. I don't need that mask. Or I'm immune. Maybe I'm going to go to this secret party. And hopefully they turned out okay, but maybe they didn't. And one of the biggest issues that I find just as a human living through this pandemic with COVID-19 is there is no way to know how your body is going to react to the virus until you get it. There are people who uh, have it and are asymptomatic down to people who get it and unfortunately die. And you don't know which one you're going to be, where you're going to be on the spectrum until you receive it. So, you know, definitely that rumor of immunity most likely caused some individuals to be a little more cavalier than maybe they would have been. And again, we hope that most of them don't don't contract it, but it's highly probable that many of them did. So moving from infection to how we're responding to the virus, I was reading an article in the Washington Post that said because of these concerns, there will be a special panel of African-American physicians that will review the COVID vaccinations being created, and they will have the power to tell the FDA that the vaccine should not be released if they don't think it would be safe and effective. Do you think that's a necessary measure? You know, that's a really great question. Um, And I'll be honest with you, from the research I've done, my answer is I'm not sure. I think that there are some individuals, um, some African-American individuals, where perhaps that may make them feel more confident in receiving the vaccine. But what research shows as far as the conversations that real live people are having is that they don't want to feel like a guinea pig again. We have to, again, go back to the history and legacy of African-Americans being tested on um, with, without their consent. Um, and what many people feel like is that this vaccination is being, um, very much rushed as we know, what is it on average, a vaccination may take about three years to come to fruition. Um, here we're looking at it in a matter of six months, nine months, depending on when it's released. And because of that preponderance of African-Americans who work in those frontline jobs, who would you give the vaccine to first? That makes sense. It makes sense to give the vaccine to individuals who, because of their circumstances, need to be in the public, whether that is a healthcare worker, a member of a custodial team in a healthcare facility, a CNA, all of that makes logical sense. We know this. But that also means that there's a preponderance of African-Americans who will be first in line for this experimental vaccine that has been fast-tracked that, what have we heard recently, that it might be 50% effective? And we know that there's one person that had some adverse effects, I think, in one of the, was it one of the UK studies where they had to stop it uh, for a period of time? But we don't know what those effects were. No one said anything. And so you're telling me I'm front in line again, just like Tuskegee, where they gave my ancestors syphilis and didn't treat it, just like when my ancestors were tested on in various ways. Mm, 
I don't know how I feel about that. So I think that, again, while there may be some people who will look at that panel and feel more comfort, there also will be people who say, I'm still not going to be first in line. That doctor's not my doctor. How do I know who's paying that person? Again, all of these questions sound conspiratorial, but when we really think about it, they're not crazy. I think that that's one of the great things that I learned while working on this book throughout all of the conspiracy theories is they most certainly are conspiratorial, but the individuals who believe them are not crazy. They have something that they are pulling from, some actual bit of factual whatever that they are really pulling from that are driving them to move in this particular direction, whereas the rest of us may just be going left and they're going right. What else should we know about the interconnection of COVID conspiracy theories and the African-American population? Sure. I, I think that what this really, again, shows is a continued mistrust of the, I'm going to call it the medical establishment, that even though um, African-Americans who are descendants of slaves clearly aren't slaves anymore, even though um, Jim Crow laws and segregation have been removed, despite all of those things, there is still a deep-seated mistrust of modern medicine. And again, when we think about that, it may feel like, well, maybe people shouldn't believe that. But I believe it was 2016 where a UVA study found that their residents still believed that African-Americans felt less pain than other people. That's not that far ago. And by the way, that's not true. So if that's still occurring, where perhaps individuals on just a more routine basis are not feeling as if they're being heard by their medical professionals, are feeling that perhaps they receive inadequate or lackadaisical treatment, and the only thing that they can see that is different between them as Tanya and the person next to them as Susie is that they are Black and Susie is not. Um, what, you know, for me, I think that what the COVID conspiracy shows to those of us who care about healthcare, healthcare access, and health equity is that our work is very far from being done. When we have a community that can feel like they are merely being tested on as guinea pigs, when we have a community that is still worried about something that ended in 1972, um, I think that that shows us in the field that we have some work to do both in education of our medical professionals in looking at how we treat clients and how we think of those treatments and in also making sure that our consumers and um, patients and clients feel comfortable and confident in the care that they are receiving. Now, during our interview, you made a couple comments about what we've seen in hospitals and subways in New York City. Uh, but last I checked, there's not a subway in Giles County. How is any of this specific to rural health? Sure. So what we still do see in our rural localities are intergenerational households. What we still see in our rural communities are that our individuals of color still have that preponderance to work in those low-wage 
community front-facing service jobs where they may be working in tight quarters and or serving members of the community who, again, someone may be asymptomatic, having absolutely no intention of infecting someone, um, but it happens. And we still see, um, you know, when, with that statistic that you brought up about hospital janitorial staff, we still have medical facilities in our rural locations. Nothing changes about that number. That is a, a that uh, statistic is looking at medical facilities as a whole, uh, not just medical facilities in our larger urban centers. So this still impacts our communities of color in rural areas, and. I think also it impacts those communities because of those conspiratorial thoughts. Remember, the gentlemen who were enlisted in Tuskegee were sharecroppers, which meant they lived in our rural communities. They were farming. Right. They didn't, um, you know, the the public health uh, service did not enlist individuals who had gone through the Great Migration and were living in the middle of Chicago. They were Southern sharecroppers. So that history is something that, again, is probably baked into families here in our community, um, in our rural communities. Also, when we think of perhaps, you know, whether or not adequate health care was uh, something that people were able to achieve. I know that from growing up um, here in the South, my family's roots are from both Bedford County and uh, Franklin County. And so, you know, there certainly probably were times where maybe an individual in, you know, my family legacy was not able to access adequate health care because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And that certainly is something that moves through even me. I know from what I have been taught, which is rooted in things that happened to my Southern rural family, that I have to go in and advocate for myself medically in a different way on a general basis, let alone during a pandemic. Um, So, you know, even though we may not have community spread through subways, Um, We still do have community spread through public transportation, through multi-generational households, through intergenerational households and community, uh, tight community dwellings. Um, We still have that spread through our low-income front-facing workers at our grocery stores, at our plants. Uh, Meatpacking plants, by the way, typically are not in urban centers. Uh, So those are all things definitely to consider. So um, our urban communities are not immune from these conspiratorial thoughts and our urban communities are not immune to many of the conditions that increase transmission of COVID-19. If a healthcare provider was interested in learning more about the concerns African-American populations have about receiving care and how to best address these concerns, what would that person do? Sure. So that is a great question. And I will be honest, it's something that I have been struggling with um, a lot myself. Um, I knew about the healthcare inequity, again, from being a woman of color um, who has, you know, Southern Black ancestors who at one point were slaves, right? So these are things that I grew up simply knowing, um, but I didn't necessarily grow up always learning about the systemic impact of racism on our healthcare system. I do believe that there are some individuals who have written some absolutely fantastic books. Um, 
I think medical apartheid is one. Um, so there are people that are doing this work out here. And I would encourage our medical professionals to really seek out those uh, trusted sources for them. Um, there certainly is a lot of work looking at that um, health disparity and health inequity in maternal health right now, because uh, that is a larger topic. Um, so there's going to be a lot of uh, peer-reviewed articles that are going to be coming out on that, that our healthcare uh, professionals can trust. Um, you know, but I, I think that this is a this is a bigger issue. And one of the things I would tell you that I'm concerned about is oftentimes when we are looking at um, these studies, they, again, are not done um, in our rural localities. Um, so the, you know, the studies that are being done, the people that are being talked to about their concerns oftentimes are not the people that we um, here thinking about Virginia Rural Health Care Association are serving. Um, so maybe even just having some of those conversations, encouraging our, um, our medical education uh, here in the Commonwealth to perhaps take a closer look at this work because they have some absolutely fantastic researchers um, that are always looking, uh, you know, for for something to, to dive into those interesting puzzles, as my dissertation chair calls them. Um, so that that is one of the things that I would also recommend is just seeing if maybe we can get a little more traction in looking at that, um, that health inequity as it occurs in our rural localities from the fantastic schools here in the Commonwealth. And last question, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Hmm. Honestly, I would study it. Um, what we find is that where the research sort of lands, where there's an emphasis in that, in that, um, you know, that academic look sometimes so follows uh, practice uh, because then there's evidence, there's papers, there's uh, peer-reviewed documents, for example. And so I think it's just really important that we continue to study the impacts of health inequality on rural communities of color. And this is not just because of the pandemic or dealing with COVID-19, uh, but also continuing to study and look at the um, impacts of health inequity and mental health disparities of communities of color living in rural areas. In health, specifically for um, our mamas who are living in a rural community? Does it look different? Do we need to take a different approach? And none of this is to point a negative finger um, at any sort of uh, service or mainstream medical, um, you know, facility. It's more just to see, are we missing something? That's the question that I always have. What are we missing when it comes to trying to make sure that everyone has equal and culturally competent access to healthcare in any community you live in, whether that is an urban center or especially if that is in one of our uh, rural locations. So again, it's not, for me, it's not a negative look as in placing blame, but it's a, we didn't recognize this. We didn't realize that this looks different here. And so how can we um, study this to find out what those conditions are, what looks different, so then we can address them. We can actually tackle them and work our way through them. Okay. Well, thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. 
That's Ashley Marshall promoting thorough analysis of public health issues to assure the best path for improving the health of our rural communities. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join the Rural Health Voice Annual Conference. Links are in the show notes, or you can visit vrha.org and click the events tab. Until then, don't forget your flu shot.